Welcome to our first ecological, anti-fossil and mildly heretical podcast created by a group of independent students who are all from different countries at the Center for Development and the Environment. My name is Nina Vitoshek and with me here in the studio there are the following guests. Uh, my name is Shayan and I'm a student at the Center for Development and the Environment. And I grew up in Iran, but lived most of my adult life in the U.S. My name is Adrian. Uh, I come from Peru, and I also study a master's degree at the Center for Development and the Environment of the University of Oslo. And I'm Julianne, and I'm a master's student in philosophy at the University of Oslo, and I'm also part of Extinction Rebellion. And I am multidilettante David Chakran. I am a professor emeritus at the uh, University of Hard Knocks, <laughs> which is near Fort Knox. Back to you, Nina. Thank you very much, Professor Chakron. We are very impressed by your credentials. Thank you. Going to the theme uh, or attacking the theme of our uh, first podcast, the so-called Echo Pod, um, we are going to uh, talk about the profits of green groupthink. And I have a thought on that topic, and I'd like you very much to comment on it. Because I think that nothing illustrates the profits of green groupthink as the case of Greta Thunberg and the current ongoing pandemics. What is the connection? Well, about a year ago, a teenager called Greta Thunberg was sitting uh, in front of the uh, Swedish parliament uh, trying to organize a school strike for climate. And uh, she, uh, she was sharing only one simple message, uh, share my panic. What did she want and what did her followers want? Um, uh, they wanted all the contamination of the planet Earth to stop and it stopped. They wanted all of us to be grounded. We are now grounded. They wanted the aviation industry to stop polluting the planet. Well, they are no longer active. And this is my cynical observation. The old fossil generation that is responsible for the current climate crisis to die out. Isn't it a bit on the verge of a witchcraft? Isn't it illustrating the power of collective mind and green groupthink? What do you think, Cheyenne? Um, well, I guess to begin with, um, it's, it's helpful to think about how a lot of what we are going through right now is a very like, vivid and clear indicator of we can't continue living our lives like we have for the past few centuries, that there should be limits to growth, that there should be limits to the extent to which people have the capacity to exploit labor and the natural world in order to generate uh, private profit. Juliana, mm -hmm. uh, you're in Extinction Rebellion and you're in a sense one of the shock troops that have been also inspired by Greta Thunberg. Uh, what are your comments on this, the power of green group thing that was unleashed by Greta? Well, there is no connection with the pandemics, but before the pandemic started, I think everyone was Greta, but she was like the first domino piece that just threw the elders over. She is really powerful. She did something no politician could ever do. So we have made governments declare climate and ecological crisis and things have happened. The pandemics kind of shifted everything and turned everything around. So mm. 
I'm quite speechless. David, is pandemics good for the climate? Let's put it this way. Like you said in your very novel introduction, that uh, suddenly everything that Greta wanted has come about. This would never have happened. We never could have had an illustration as clear as what we're going through right now with the pandemic. The positive collateral damage of the pandemic is that we actually get to test drive a a more sustainable daily life. Mm. This is true. But there are tanks on the streets of Peru, I hear, uh, on some streets at least. Adrian, what is your comment on that? I mean, these tanks are supposed to keep people at home? Um, Yes, um, it's supposed to organize the entire population because the, as it has been foreseen, there, there was going to be convulsion, people going out into the streets, not following the orders of the government. And people were actually asking for a long time to, to have a little bit more state control, but they're not realizing to which extent they're giving up their own rights. So it's a bit contradictory. In the end, if tanks are going to the streets, then who's going to take them out? Now, let's start from our definitions uh, of what we mean by groupthink. And I uh, go back to my favorite writer, George Orwell, the author of the famous novel about uh, the mechanism of totalitarian oppression, such as The Animal Farm, 1984. Both of them were filmed. And he defined groupthink as a, a mode of thinking which is the result of tremendous group pressure on an individual to conform and comply with majority's opinion. Now, uh, my next question would be, uh, is there a kind of an enormous pressure now exerted by the post-Thunbergian generation or Thunbergian generation on all of us to uh, conform and uh, comply with the majority's opinion? I'm talking about the progressive majority's opinion. Do you, do you think it's only liberating or do you think it has its constraints or it has, it's, it's a bit fascistic? Uh, I wonder what uh, Juliana thinks on that. Well, I see uh, the movements, they are splitting. And Thunberg, she's, for example, she doesn't fly. She's a vegan and other things. And we have a growing movement that agrees with her and means that we all should go vegan. We all should stop flying. We all should do all these things. But at the same time, you have a counter movement that is forming that says that you have to have small local farmers growing their own food and slaughtering animals, eating red meat. And also you could say that if you stop flying, we don't meet other cultures. Perhaps our empathy levels get lower. So there's uh, different views on this. So there's already a rebellion against rebellion. Now, uh, Adrian, you're a specialist on social media. I think this is the topic of your research. And uh, what is the influence on, on, of social media on reinforcing group thing, you know, reinforcing the, the kind of the tyranny of one way of thinking uh, among your contem- contemporaries, among students, for example, or, or young pupils? Well, you, you, you said it, Nina, um, social media is a great enhancer of, of groupthink. Uh, if, if we actually realize that groupthink is a, a social phenomenon, then we have to say that social media is going to uh, be exponential 
in those in those same in, in those same problems. We tend to connect to relatives, to uh, our peers at work through social media, and uh, when when there's a certain topic that falls into groupthink, and somebody doesn't agree with the group, then there's a risk that your personal relations are going to get affected. Talking about your career, it's going to be really, really detrimental for your future prospects. Right. Uh, Cheyenne, does uh, groupthink bother you as a kind of this specter of uh, political correctness? Because that's another word for political correctness, isn't it? Which is now green. It's changed its color. So right. Speak. Yeah. Um, I think on the one hand, it's important to mobilize the citizenry to, uh, you know, work towards something. And it requires this like grassroots mobilization, a lot of people coming together, working towards a particular vision. On the other hand, the danger is that there are so many powerful actors, right? Everything from like NGOs to particular people, even within the green movement, right? Like for example, Al Gore, who have this techno-capitalist vision of sustainable development. And I fear that a lot of this mobilization that is coming from Greta among hundreds of others, uh, grassroots activists, around the world is going to get channeled into this. You're just going to, you know, have renewable energy and we are going to like have you know, clean energy and have electric cars and everything's going to be fine. And we are going to keep on with this growth and extraction. And, you know, the, the, the danger there is that if, if we don't have people who are questioning the normative narrative, who are taking on that risk, as Adrian mentioned on, you know, the fact that you might risk your career, that you might risk your socioeconomic status, et cetera, so forth, to engage with this narrative, uh, that, that that mobilization could just end up going in the wrong direction, as we see in many revolutions that have gone wrong. Precisely. David, uh, you're an artist. You're an artist. What is your take on groupthink? You're a, a natural rebel, right? It's quite interesting because it's perhaps the first time that anybody can be a pundit that has an enormous audience. So for the first time, a housewife or a teenager or anyone who traditionally doesn't have the background to be an opinion former now has a cyber soapbox to stand on and make their voice heard. But it also, I think there's a kind of a, a quantizing of meaning. You kind of shave off everything that is a little quirky and so on, and you fall into these slots, which we see in the United States where the polarization is just incredible. And there are, of course, some variations, but people want that big audience. And it seems as though they attract a bigger audience if they subscribe to one of these polarized views of, of the world. I think uh, social media is giving, especially people who were uh, the age of Greta Thunberg, a voice right now. So we tend to, historically, we tend not to take seriously opinions that come from underage kids or kids that come from school. And they're always complaining we're not taking them seriously. New, new fresh voices. But unfortunately, many of these voices seem to fall into slots also to guarantee them more likes. And what, what do you mean about slots? Do you think it's kind of a stereotyping thing? or Let's put it this way. If, if you're in your own living room with a couple of friends, that you can throw out some, some, some opinions there. They can be quirky. They can be far out. You don't worry too much about it. But once you are addressing via you know, Twitter or Facebook or whatever, uh, hundreds and then thousands of people, you, you tend to kind of smooth off certain things, just like politicians do. They get more and more vague because they, they don't want to turn away people that, that would like to subscribe to them. 
they kind of refine their message and then they start catering, unfortunately, to, to extremes on either side. Right. So almost everybody has his or her hard part corner, so to speak, right, to preach from. Uh, Juliana. Well, another aspect of social media is that everyone's uh, eyes are on you and you represent some kind of group. Everyone does. As an activist, I, for example, represent Extinction Rebellion. So you have always have the others, your friends, their group eyes on you and you always have to remember to represent. So you don't have, you don't, you must not step wrong. Exactly. That's the quantization I'm talking about. It's yeah. very interesting because I, I, I've read in the British press that the generation that is growing up now and, and you know, uh, getting vegan, getting earth-friendly, trying to fight against the sixth extinction, uh, that this is a generation called snowflake generation. Now, why is it called the snowflake generation? Because they are easy to hurt. They are easy to uh, to be insulted. And they immediately react, you know, and stigmatize those who insult them. So uh, do you have an impression that this process, that together with the group thing, there is also a process of stigmatization of the of the heretics, you know, of the of the of those who think differently? Well, Nina, it's not only that they like melt as soon as they hit the ground. It's also that every snowflake is unique. It's about special snowflakes or unique snowflakes. I mean, we're living in a country where this is very prevalent. We, every mother and father says to their child, you are so special. You are a special person with all your specialness. And, and don't let anybody tell you anything else. Yeah, that is right. Yeah, uh, Juliana? I think also, like... I think I'm part of that generation. I'm 31 years old, but I think we are a product of our society because everything is specialized. Everything is perfected. Technology is perfected. And also we diagnose every child and you, you, all, you have a name for everything. So that is part of it. And we're grown up to treat everyone the same. So I am, I'm against sexism, racism, and that can be like you can think that is political uh, correctness but i have this anger like but it is yeah i'm not yeah. going to i'm not going to accept it so that's yeah okay agent I'm going to have to disagree with that with that term. Uh, which, snow, which one? Snowflake. Snowflake. Oh, uh, snowflake we, we need disagreement. Okay. Snowflake uh, I mean it's a term that uh, can make a stereotype of an entire generation. You know what? What all the voices are just like uh, guys that and women that are offended right now because some somebody says something they don't like. I don't think so. I think you're putting everybody inside a bag and saying this entire generation is like this just because there was no ways of knowing what they thought before. Maybe they were we were snowflakes all the time, but nobody knew because there was no social media, no nothing to just express ourselves. The very fact that you've been offended by the term snowflake means that maybe you are a snowflake. You know, you are her. So it's like a meta insult. <laughs> and, and, and I think uh, the term snowflake must be uh, the result of group thinking. Okay, very good. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Adrian and Cheyenne, now I have a question to you. Compare your, the modus operandi or modus vivendi of your generation and the generation of your parents or grandparents, you know, the ones who made the revolution in 1960s, you know, the great rebels. Cheyenne. Yeah, so, well, I'm going to try to connect some of the things we talked right now to your question here. Um, so to, to, to begin with, the loudest voices are often heard the most. And this is also to a large extent because... The, Social media oftentimes amplifies things that end up getting the most amount of views, and uh, as a result, they can generate more ads, and that's what we end up seeing the most. And you know, it's just kind of this like feedback loop of that happening again and again. And the other thing is that you know maybe it's a possibility that minorities that have historically uh, not had as much of a uh, voice or a platform uh, or Uh, haven't really spoken up or organized before are doing that more so now, especially thinking about queer folks uh, or um, immigrants, people of color, etc. So there, you know, those are some of the things. But then, I mean, my background is in social psychology. And, uh, you know, you find that many social psychologists argue that we are living through this helicopter parenting era where uh, you know people are more sensitive than they were a few decades ago as a result of it, and there's all these safe spaces now in colleges, et cetera, so forth, uh, and you're less willing to, to listen to people from different ideologies. But Nina, coming to the question that you just mentioned with the people from 60s and 70s, there's something there perhaps, but I think it's also a bit essentializing if you extend that to all of the world. Uh, so for example, looking at Iran, uh, you know, uh, there are hundreds or if not thousands of student activists who, are, who have been arrested, who have gone to political prison. Uh, we have great journalists, uh, you know, et cetera, so forth, who have been fighting the regime for decades now. And I think that they're no less courageous than, than the revolutionaries of the 70s. So what Cheyenne said was very instructive because uh, we have to remember that we are in an international group of students coming from different parts of the world and the snowflake generation is the um, privileged uh, country's generation. Actually, it belongs to uh, the well-fed world, whereas there's one uh, part of the world that is still struggling and it's as far away from snow as possible and it's fighting for democracy and freedom and we should support them. Now, how are we going to protect ourselves against uh, becoming the victims of, of groupthink? And how do you recognize, actually, victims of groupthink? I wondered, uh, David, do you have your own uh, way of uh, deciphering such people? Well, I mean, anything that you can have a meaning about has got a groupthink component to it because we are, for the most part, uh, intellectually lazy. And we have to have opinions about a whole mess of things that we really don't know anything about. I think the groupthink is actually something like gravity. And the world is, is, is divided into left and right and Republican and Democrat. Um, it, it's, it's just much easier to say, no, I'm a little bit more on that side. And then you get sucked into that. Either you're in Jupiter or you're in Saturn because they're just such enormous. They have such enormous gravity. That's just the way it is. We're, yeah. we're very binary. Right. Adrian. I think it's worth mentioning the, the psychologist Irving Janis here. Uh, he mentioned a, a certain amount of characteristics that actually helps you to recognize when groups think is, is happening. And it's worth to, to mention that one of them is peer pressure. Well, certain groups enforce pressure among the members of a group that are not thinking exactly how the gatekeepers or the persons who are the more power 
and have uh, this non-mainstream views. As we are social animals, we are we want to fit into the group. And this this whole idea of exerting group pressure is going to, in the end, make us want to uh, be in agreement with the mainstream opinion because we don't want to be left out. Uh, I would say something because it's, I agree with you both. And But you feel uh, when... When you yourself get dragged into a group thing, you can feel it in yourself. I've been all over the place, both in lifestyles and religious views. I bet some of you also have, but I have to an extreme amount <laughs> been searching. And, and I am now really skeptical. And I always, when I am on my own, I always step into that feeling and like, I don't want to I don't want to get too involved with this because I see the group think that you get really obsessed and you start to defend your view and you have a bunch of other people doing the same. When you're in that state, you have to be, you have to be aware that you can start to lose your critical sense. Precisely. That reminds me actually of a, of a very funny scene from um, <clears throat> a Monty Python film. You know, there is this uh, wonderful episode where there is a leader of the uh, Jewish rebellion against the Romans. And he says, now we are all individualists here in this group. And everybody and says, Brian. yes. Mm -hmm. And then there is one guy who says in a little voice, I am not. <laughs> 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 so there we are. Um, but this is factions, and this is exactly what that scene is about. It's about factionists. It's, it's, it's if the people, the people of Palestine's Jewish front was their biggest enemy. It's the united people's Palestine front. It's just, <laughs> just a little bit over to the side. And they will, sooner or later, if they want power, they're going to have to consolidate, and that's the way they do it. And then they erase all those small little differences. And that's, that's group thinking practice. Definitely. Uh, it's consensus. And we live in the land of mm. consensus. So that also should be, should be mentioned. Consensus is important. But also seeking consensus, maybe some, it, it, there is a virtue in it. And Scandinavia is actually a master of, 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 of this, of the art of consensus and dialogue and all that. And so there is something like a harmonic imperative almost built into the Nordic cult culture, I think. Uh, but what is interesting is perhaps maybe something we are not talking about. What about cowardice? You know, because this is ultimately what is making us join uh, groups, uh, avoid having our own opinions. Uh, a cowardice we should talk about it with. Yeah, so um, again, I'm going to try to connect the previous conversation to this. Um, so, you know, on, on the one hand, um, in order to resist groupthink, we should make sure that the conversation and the narrative isn't guided by corporate media, by their PR firms, by their communications experts. And how do we do this? It's to empowering independent, uh, you know, effectively media organizations like The Intercept, like Democracy Now!, like journalists like Chris Hedges and Jeremy Scahill, who are, you know, going to go out and question the normative narrative. Um, and do the investigative work that you know Washington Post and New York Times aren't willing to do. So that's one thing. But I think here what would also be really good to bring in is Chomsky's manufacturing consent, right? Um, the, the effectively, and, and on that on one hand, on the other hand, you know George Orwell talks about how. Uh, you know, football gambling and petty quarrel with their neighbors occupied the horizons of their mind and to keep them in control was not difficult. And this connects to the cowardice aspect of this conversation. Yes. 
do, what do you think, Juliana? Uh, do you think there are many cowards in the Extinction Rebellion, or are there only brave people there? I think you also have you have brave people for sure. I think it's easy to become coward when you are critical of the consensus, which is in large part in agreement in agreement with Greta Thunberg on veganism and not flying and such. And I know voices that try to speak up against that for ecological agriculture and stuff. And I have seen debates, rational debates over Facebook where they respect each other's view and it's really good. But I have also seen smashing and like people being frozen out kind of because of their views. So you have both sides. Uh, I like the, the, uh, what Cheyenne said about the ways we should prevent uh, groupthink, you know, by cultivating creativity and independent thinking and opposing the corporate thinking as well, because we're, not, we're talking both about green um, uh, lobby and the corporate lobby here, two very powerful lobbies today. But I think that there is also one more way of opposing uh, groupthink, and this is uh, via humor through comedy, through uh, satire, through humor. What do you think, David? You are a specialist on humor. Mm. Oh. Well, it, it, funny, you should, funny you should say that because um, as we were speaking about snowflakes, I mean, I grew up in the 60s in the United States. If we look back, if we see the stand-up comedians from the 60s and 70s, they would never be able to get away with what they were saying back then. They were calling every race, and they were not discriminating. They were, every race was being put down. We could say today that many people were hurt, many people were offended, that uh, it perpetuated these stereotypes and uh, was completely anti-progressive. Maybe, maybe. But perhaps we've also lost something when humor also has to be sanitized. Uh, I have one question here to all of you, actually, because uh, I'd like to discuss something that is maybe a, a forbidden topic, but Jürgen Randers, who's a colleague of mine at the uh, business school uh, in Oslo, uh, he's also the co-author of uh, the famous bestseller and uh, book on uh, limits to growth. Now, he insists that if we uh, want to s solve the climate crisis, and we are very serious about it, we can only do it by adopting some kind of, some form of authoritarian control, Chinese style, preferably. Uh, he had a very interesting debate with Francis Fukuyama, who was completely befuddled by this proposition and uh, who was uh, thrown off. Um, now, the question is, should we give up our democratic freedoms for the sake of saving Mother Earth? And I'm just wondering, Adrian, what do you think? Well, they're thinking that there's only one solution to save Mother Earth. That's promoting, that's a bit pro to promote the group thinking, you know, because you're just trying to uh, promote a single vision and then try everybody following you with this, you know. And then when the vision is promoted, then somebody else who's going to speak up will not be able to speak up because, oh, Surprise, you're in an authoritarian regime. No, you can't speak up. Your rights are limited. Now it's a different situation. So I don't think that limiting people's rights is going to be the, way, the best answer to, to our problem, current problems. Uh, Juliana. Well, if you 
came to me and said, um, you're going to get a package. It's not a pandemic, but the flights will stay on the ground and we will stop drilling for oil. And uh, we will all take care of nature, grow trees, and don't use so much stuff. And, but you have to have an authoritarian uh, government. Uh, I think I would say yes, <laughs> actually, to, to stop the fossil fuels that, yeah, we're going to do it today. Are you in, do you agree? But we have to take away from you some of your freedom. I think I would say yes, actually. Yes. Would you say yes, Anne? Well, the problem here is how do you negotiate your way out of it, right? <laughs> so that's, that's, that's one problem there. I think having lived through a revolution that, that went really wrong um, in, in, in Iran, this idea kind of sends shivers down my spine. Uh, on the one hand, you kind of have to believe in this idea of a benevolent dictator, right? And then you, on the other hand, you have to believe that they're going to do the right thing. And then you also have to believe that, okay, once, you know, situation goes back to quote unquote normal, that you're going to be able to negotiate your way out of it and move to a decentralized democratic society, which I think is, is you know, I mean, I'm willing to think about it as a thought experiment, but it's, it's a dangerous idea. It's a very dangerous idea for me as well, and I have a similar background as you. <laughs> I also participated in a big revolution uh, which was about freedom. Adrian. And, and if I may add, I totally agree with Cheyenne in this point, in this topic, because we are now living this situation in Peru. Uh, there are tanks in the streets. There's a bit of an authoritarian regime. Either way, we're just justifying this because of the COVID-19 crisis. We're limiting some of our rights for the sake of controlling the disease. But who knows if this is going to be prolonged for a long time, if there's going to be an abuse of power. That's the thing. We, we, we think we are certain that there's not going to be any excess because we accepted it. But if we leave it for a long period of time, we don't know what the outcome will be in five years, six years. Who knows? Who knows how long this uh, virus is going to last? Yeah. And we have Americans, right, who are very much divided on it. And uh, we know that uh, we see on televisions uh, all the uh, groups protesting against uh, uh, rules and regulations that limit the sacred American freedoms. Uh, you know, something that is has been there with us forever and ever. Amen. And uh, this is uh, the great violation. Uh, David, how do you perceive it? I mean, you're looking at your own country from a distance now. Well, I mean, what's happening now is the kind of weaponizing of this, uh, this pandemic. You have a, a health crisis, and yet it gets turned into, as you mentioned, Nina, it gets turned into a question of civil liberties. And when someone frames something like that, you see the problem with the United States because we have the ultimate consumer mecca. We have we, we, where everything is uh, quantified in in profit, and we have then the the ultimate capitalist as a president. And this is a, a really dangerous combination because he plays to all the the wrong impulses in in our nature. As we spoke of Greta Thunberg in the beginning, and we, as you began in your, in your introduction, that, that almost her wishes have come true, I would say that 
all the capitalists are saying the exact same thing. They're saying, look what happens when we don't have productivity. You say you don't want airlines. Well, what happens? Suddenly we've got 100,000 airline workers that are suddenly unemployed. And it's always about employment and it's always about profit margins. We're going to be going through a time now with an economic downturn of a historic proportion and they will do everything, anything to, to get us back to, to where we were before this. Uh, Juliane. Well, I would say that uh, we have to remember that the pandemic stops uh, a lot of climate action being done and it will put many in an economical crisis which will make them obsessed with their own life and their own problems uh, and I don't think it's good for the environment. In Norway we, we predicted that this selection, ele election would become a climate election but now we don't know. So. I think this is really bad news for the climate uh, pandemic. I don't think it's a gift at all. Mm. Yeah, and I think to add to what uh, David was saying uh, and Juliana as well is that the, you know this idea that um, the capitalists are going to do whatever they can in order to get us back to normal is just one part of it. And, and I mean to add to this, after 9/11, we had the Patriot Act, right? And like for in in Israel, I think is 1948 or maybe early 50s, where they declared a state of emergency, which the country is still in, right? These things just keep getting extended forever, uh, even uh, and and right now we are seeing this implementing of policies to track people using their phones, etc. Especially in Southeast Asia, and it's hard to see how this is going to reverse. So we might find ourselves in a world that is much more difficult in which to dissent um, uh, and organize than the one we previously found ourselves in. Um, so I am very concerned. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that uh, the very fact that everything has become virtual now, you know, Zooming classes, Zooming conferences, Zooming meetings and so on and so forth, will further pacify us and make us into spectators, voyeurs, rather than activists and, uh, you know, people of action and uh, the doers, so to speak. Because I must admit that the, 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 the internet is a bit of a vampire, doesn't it? It sucks energy out of you. Uh, Juliana, what do you think? I actually agree. Um, the school strikers and Extinction Rebellion, they are continuing actions through the internet. You have the SOFA Rebellion uh, by the Extinction Rebellion and the school strikes are going di digital. Uh, I myself haven't been able to join. Uh, it's, I think it's really weird and I don't think we do much with just doing the action on the internet, even though I have to say social media played a large part in all the actions before because we filmed everything we did and put it on social media. So we were addicted to it then also, but now since it's just a totally, completely way of doing it, it just feels fake, kind of, for me at least. I think the work is on, on the way. Uh, it, it, it hasn't happened nowadays. It's not the current phenomenon. It's only more pronounced now because we are spending more time at home. And yes, this kind of, you could say, artificial kind of activism because it's behind a computer could feel a little bit different from the normal one, even though like we're doing it through a platform. So we're depending on a corporation called Facebook to 
put our ideas out there, to put our, our, our independent thinking and our activism out there. So we are constrained by another platform. So it's power control within power control within power control <laughs> to get our ideas out. So we're constantly being monitored, filtered, constantly being censored by corporations that are on top of your ideas and on top of your groups. Not only corporations, university as well. Don't you think so? Universities as well, organizations in general, companies. I think this whole system has to be break, broken loose. There are some ideas I'm working on which are related to uh, uh, building a new social media platform that it's uh, independent from all these corporations, more based on blockchain technology. Uh, it's some crazy ideas I'm having, but it's worth going digging on it. Definitely. Some wise thoughts, please. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. I actually love what Adrian just said, but um, with, with, with blockchain and uh, other social medias. And, uh, you know, that's the thing. Uh, th these platforms that we have come to rely on so fundamentally, like LinkedIn and Facebook and Instagram, Amazon, etc., they they are you know privately owned public infrastructures effectively at this point. Very few shareholders that get to you know decide huge decisions that have ripple effects throughout our institutions and life on a daily basis, and they're not really our friends. Um, and uh, to go back to what Nina mentioned earlier with pacification, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm afraid that the interests of these um, multinationals that are hiding uh, all their monies in, in tax havens um, is uh, that you know, their interests are the same with the capitalist classes. And uh, I doubt they're going to want to give much of a platform to revolutionaries <laughs> in, the, in the coming <laughs> years. So that's that. Okay, you wanted to add something, uh, Juliana. Yeah. yeah, because I think I said I think it's fake, mm -hmm. and I, I what is it, fake? What is the, fake? It, it's because when I do actions, I'm mm -hmm. together with the people, mm -hmm. and that's where the magic happens. And it's really mm -hmm. magical being with the other people. Mm -hmm. and like here, with we're together. It's it's yeah, it's a totally different dimension. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, David, do you have any closing thoughts? Um, I think there will be a longing to go back to the norm before the pandemic. However, I am quite sure that just like what happened in Eastern Europe after the fall of the wall, a certain longing back to the Soviet time. And there will be a certain, in fact, I almost already miss the first couple of weeks of the lockdown because there was something incredibly cozy about it. There was something... I felt that I was part of a universal um, struggle, which I know, I mean, I wasn't actively, but in staying at home, I was somehow slightly contributing to, to something that everyone else was also doing. And, and that kind of group effort is incredibly, incredibly rare these days. Maybe that was the ultimate group think, Nina. And I think that we're going we're gonna to look back at that as a, with, with a little bit of nostalgia in not too long a time. Yeah. Uh, so let's hope that, uh, that this pandemic will be uh, the time of uh, getting new experience and maybe realizing uh, sharply that we are in danger of losing our freedoms, uh, of uh, falling into a groupthink. Because this will be the time of, of uh, you know, living in the bubble. And a bubble is always full of uh, identical ideas, identical people, identical minds, uh, and so on. 
And uh, the only antidote against it is uh, actually uh, maybe the um, wisdom of Leonardo da Vinci, who said that, uh, you know, uh, I care for civilization uh, and I care for the rules and restraints, but I care for freedom much more than for these rules and restraints. Thank you very much, everybody. I'd like to thank Shayan and Adjan and uh, Juliane, who have been with us in this podcast. But in particular, I'd like to uh, thank Professor um, Dilettanticus, David, uh, without whom uh, and whose, uh, without whose expertise uh, on the technical front, we would have never been able to produce this podcast. So thanks again. And see you next week, or hear you next week. Mm-hmm.